And you can see in your bulletin this morning that we're back one more time to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. We've been making our way through this chapter of late. We got started by looking at verses 1 through 5. Listen to them again. Follow along if you like. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So that's where we began, verses 1 through 5. There was that summons to repentance, come back to God. It was a summons to repentance that went out to the very ends of the earth, and it came with wisdom behind it, best decision you'll ever make, come back to God. And it came with promises attached to it, even the promise of a covenant bond with God, bound with him. Verses 1 through 5. And then we kept going. Look now at verse 6. Because next we covered verses 6 through 9. Listen to them again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that was verses 6 through 9. And remember, that was a continuation of what we saw in the beginning. God calling people to repentance from the very ends of the earth. And calling them with a sense of urgency. Now's the time. Don't put this off. And calling them with a a promise of abundant forgiveness for those who come back to him. And even calling them with the reassurance that they can trust that staggering promise of abundant forgiveness. Why? Because God's not like us. His thoughts and ways so much higher, immeasurably higher than our own. That was verses 6 through 9. And then last week, as we approach our present morning, last week we looked at verses 10 and 11. Take a look at them again. Verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That was last week, verses 10 and 11, a precipitation forecast unlike any you've ever heard because it was, it was certain it was divine promise. The word of the Lord accomplishes the purposes of the Lord. That, that's a sweeping truth in so many ways, all of the way from creation in the beginning to new creation in the end. But remember, it's a sweeping truth that's serving a narrow purpose here in this chapter. The word of the Lord accomplishes the purposes of the Lord. And what that truth is doing in this chapter, again, is to reassure us that the promise of forgiveness, we can count on it. We can count on it because it is God who's made the promise. And our God is a God who speaks no empty, vain, futile, powerless, pointless words. And not only that, not only can the promise be trusted, but it is the power of the Lord that many will actually take him up on it. It is the purpose of the Lord that he have for himself a redeemed, repentant people, well, he's going to have it. He's going to have that people. And he's getting it now. He's getting it by the ministry of the word, blessed by the Spirit. The word of the Lord accomplishes the purposes of the Lord. So that's the ground that we have covered thus far here in Isaiah 55. And that brings us then to the very end of it. These two verses that are left Verses 12 and 13, it's the end of the chapter, but this is a glorious new beginning that's set before us here. Listen to verses 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, a word that abides which is good for us because our need of it abides as well. And so we pray that you would bless us now, that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders that you have for us here. Open our eyes to behold Christ, who is our wondrous Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. On our church website, there's a page I've created that's called What's in Store? What's in Store? It's the page where I post at the end of the week what the sermon's going to be about on Sunday. What's in Store? And then it's not just that page on our church website. It's also the email that I send out to the church every week at the end of the week. That email includes a whole lot of what's in store. Not just what the sermon's going to be about on Sunday, but what this whole service is going to entail as I attach the bulletin to that email.
And why do I do that? Why does any church post on its website what the sermon's going to be about and so forth? Well, I do that, do that because it can be a great blessing to know what's in store. It can whet our appetites to know what's coming up because we rightly have this sense of expectancy about Sunday. We rightly have this sense, at least in the backs of our minds, and sometimes it makes our way to the fronts of our minds, that Sunday's coming. First day of the week, resurrection day, worship day. So we have a sense of expectancy about Sunday. Well, then, if we can get a glimpse of what's coming on Sunday, we'll take it. And that sense of expectancy is actually fueled. And our appetite for that day, for what we're doing right now, is whetted. Well, the point is, God deals with us that way. God, in His Word, in the Bible, has spoken about what's in store. You open up the Bible and you start reading, and among other things, what you find is teaching about the future. And, of course, that includes teaching about our future as the people of God. God has spoken about what's in store for us as his children. Think about the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. Early on in that letter, in chapter 2, he says this, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2. God has spoken about what's in store for us as the people of God. He has not remained silent with respect to these things. And just as the church website or an email can shed some light on what's coming up on the Sabbath day, So, too, the Bible tells you about what's in store in the everlasting Sabbath, the everlasting rest, which is the age to come. And the effect is the same. Our sense of expectancy is is fueled, it's heightened, it's intensified. Our appetite for it is whetted. We're longing for that everlasting Sabbath. Well, then, if we can get a glimpse of it, we'll take it and we'll make the most of it. Well, sure enough, this passage, these two verses, Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13, is a passage like that because it gives us a glimpse going way back to Isaiah's day, hundreds of years before Christ's day on earth. Even these words in Isaiah 55 give us a glimpse of the world to come. It's a glimpse of what's in store. So let's take it and make the most of it. And seek the grace of God that our sense of expectancy will be fueled again. Before we do that, before we get out our magnifying glasses and notice what's here in these words, let's get our bearings and and think a little bit about Bible history and where we are and where Isaiah was, because make no mistake, we are not where Isaiah was in the unfolding of salvation history. Way back in Isaiah's day, 
when he wrote these words. Way back then, the people of God were looking forward to what was in store. They were looking forward to the day when God would step in remarkably to save his people. But it would have been relatively unclear to them exactly how that was going to unfold. They would have had some sense that God was going to step in. They would have had some idea that God was going to send a Savior, but they would not have been able to go into detail about what that would involve and exactly what would happen. Well, that was Isaiah's day, an Old Testament day. But now here we are in our day, and God has stepped in. The Savior has come. Jesus has come. And he lived and he died and he was raised and he's reigning. And right now, all around the world, people are coming to him. That's happening now. And so in many ways, what the people of God were looking forward to way back in Isaiah's day, it's underway right now. What Isaiah was pointing them forward to, it's already coming to pass all around the world, in this church, in our lives. Promises kept. But here's the point. Even today, we're still a people who are looking forward to what's in store. As different as our day is from Isaiah's day, that hasn't changed. We're still looking forward. We are still peering forward, leaning forward, aching, longing, groaning for what's in store. It's true it's already underway, it's already coming to pass, but we're left looking forward to the day, the yet future day, when Christ is going to come back and bring all of this to its culmination. We're looking forward to the new world that Christ is going to usher in on that day. And that's important for us to bear in mind as we read this passage. Because here, yes, we're given a glimpse of the world to come. But the reason it's so thrilling for us To be told what's in store in the world to come is that so many ways we've already begun to taste it. I think of that hymn we sometimes sing, Come we that love the Lord. And those words that we sing in that hymn where it says, The men of grace have found glory begun below. What a potent phrase that is. Glory begun begun below, and then it says, and then we sing, celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. It's already underway. And that's why when we read these words, they thrill us the way they do, or they should. They draw us in the way they do, or they should. Because we are already the people of the future. Now, with that in mind, what's in these two verses? I want to notice four things about what's in store. Four things. The first of them is joy. Joy is in store. Look at verse 12. It says, for you shall go out in joy. You shall go out in joy. Maybe it says, you shall go out Because what's being imagined here, even in Isaiah's day, is our going out of this world into the world to come. 
In other words, maybe it's a kind of triumphant, liberating procession out of the old that we leave behind and into the new that we shall never leave. In any case, the point is, when Jesus comes back, we are going to know joy like we have never known it before. And that's saying a lot because we've already begun to taste joy. Peter says we've already begun to experience a joy that is positively inexpressible. That's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1. He says this, Though you have not seen him, and he's talking about Jesus, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1.8 Well, think about it. If it's inexpressible now, the joy that we feel when we don't see Christ, can you just imagine what it's going to be like when we do? If it's inexpressible joy now, well, then it's going to be inexpressibly inexpressible then. Pile on the superlatives any way you can. If it's full of glory now, it's going to be overflowing with glory then. And notice, it's not just that we're going to be experiencing glory like that in the world to come. It's as if the created order all around us and under our redeemed feet is going to be sharing in that joy with us. It's as if planet Earth is going to be singing and clapping along with us. Notice verse 12 again. It says, The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now that is a triumphant procession. This is why I wanted to read for us earlier in our service from Romans 8. Listen to it again. Romans 8, beginning at verse 19. Paul says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's Romans 8. Right now, it's as if creation is groaning. And with the ears of faith, if you just grow quiet for a moment, With the ears of faith, you can hear it. Groaning, futility, bondage, corruption, pain. On that day, on that future day, the sound of groaning is going to become mountains and trees singing and clapping instead. Joy is in store. Personal joy. Cosmic joy. So that's the first. Here's the second. Peace is in store as well in that world to come. The first was joy. The second now is peace. Look at verse 12 again. You shall go out in joy 
and be led forth in peace. And remember, by the way, what peace is in the Bible. Not a bad time of year to stop and think about that when folks are more inclined to refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace come into the world, and rightly so. Okay, then. What is peace? According to the Bible... In the Scriptures, peace isn't just absence of conflict. It includes that, but thankfully it's more than that. It's richer than that. It's fullness. It's completeness. It's fullness that's enjoyed in relationship with others so that you are truly, fully at peace with them and they with you. A Bible passage that often comes to my mind when I think about the Bible's understanding of peace is 1 Kings chapter 4. Because what you've got in 1 Kings chapter 4 is a description of the reign of King Solomon. And what makes this perfect is that the name Solomon is related to the Hebrew word for peace. It's one of the few Hebrew words that people know it's the word shalom. The name Solomon comes from that word. He's king peaceful. King peace. So here's the description of the reign of King Solomon. Here's what life was like under King Peaceful. First Kings 4, it says this. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That's living. Right there, 1 Kings 4. That's fullness. That's peace. They ate and drank and were happy. And they were numerous. And they were honored. And they were safe. It's not like they were living a life of inactivity. No, they were at work. But that's just it. There was a peace, that fullness, even as they were at work for the glory of God. Their whole way of life was full and complete and satisfying and unthreatened. That's peace. That's fullness. That's life. I remember several years ago when I had this passage on my mind and this phrase, you you shall be led forth in peace. And then I go downstairs from my study at home because it's dinner time. And I got a glimpse of it. This, This real peace around the family dinner table. It wasn't the dinner table in the dining room. It was the table out on our porch. And there we were, it was a beautiful evening, the five of us around the table, the ceiling fan whirring gently overhead, mixed with natural breezes blowing through the screens, and Christy had made this fantastic homemade pizza, accompanied by a fantastic Brussels sprout salad, and believe me, a Brussels sprout salad can be. 
And she and I had a glass of wine. And Miles Davis was playing on the speaker. And I sat back in my chair and thought, this is it. This is peace. This is shalom. We were eating and drinking. And we were happy. For we had Brussels sprout salad. It was so sweet. It was peace. It's not just that we weren't fighting. Though we weren't. No, it's that there was a fullness. It was so sweet. It was peace. And the point is when Jesus comes back, that's going to be a day of peace. For the people of God, we're already at peace with God in Christ. That's true now. We're already at peace with one another in Christ. That's true now. But that day, there's going to be peace like we've never known it. That new world, that's going to be a world of fullness and completeness and relationship like we've never known it. To put it mildly, in that world, everlastingly, we will eat and drink and worship. And we will be happy. So peace is in store. So the first was joy. The second was peace. Here's the third. We can say that life, life is in store. Look at verse 13. How does that verse begin? Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. There are so many verses in the Bible that make use of garden imagery. Flower and plant and tree imagery to help us understand the truth of the kingdom of God. Well, this is one of those verses. And think about it. What we've got here, the beginning of verse 13 is the curse of Genesis 3, that curse that was imposed right after the fall, finally reversed. This is reverse the curse. That's a familiar-sounding expression when it comes to sports. Some team has been laboring for years, perhaps decades, perhaps generations, under futility. It's been a lifetime since that team won a championship. And the rallying cry of the fans becomes, reverse the curse with the Boston Red Sox. It was the curse of the Bambino. With the Chicago White Sox, it was the curse of the Chicago Black Sox. So many socks here, I know, so many colors. With the Chicago Cubs, Chicago was like doubly cursed. So people thought. It was the curse of the billy goat. That one was one of my favorites. Since then, all of those teams have managed to win. The Detroit Lions, spare a thought for Lions fans. They have not won in a long, long time. I saw um, a video recently of Peyton Manning and the actor Jeff Daniels, who's a big Lions fan. The two of them gathered on uh, the football field where the Lions play to carry out a kind of ceremony to try to um, rid the lions of the so-called curse of Bobby Lane, 
I think they won in 1957, and that's when they traded him away and haven't won since. And so we smile, right? It's cheeky, it's silly, reverse the curse when it comes to sporting teams. It's not so, not so light when it comes to Genesis 3 and the curse that was imposed then. And when it was imposed, it created this ache, this groan for a reversal of it. Remember back in Genesis 3, right after the fall, God says this, Cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And that's a garden way, an awful, painful, lifeless garden way of capturing the the truth of the curse of God imposed after the fall. And how beautiful then to turn to the end of Isaiah 55 and read verse 13, because here it's the curse reversed. Because here in Isaiah 55, it's trees instead of thorns and briars and thistles. It's trees. There's something beautiful and life-affirming about trees. One, one commentator reflecting upon this verse at the end of Isaiah 55 puts it this way, quote, Noble trees take the place of useless and offensive plants. End quote. Noble trees standing tall, green, full of life, almost presiding over us with all of their life Noble trees take the place of useless and offensive plants. There's something about trees. Here's how John Calvin put it. Quote, In herbs, trees, and fruit, besides being useful in various ways, God planned to please us by their gracious lines and pleasant odors. End quote. In other words, this isn't just barely utilitarian. Like, well, it's a good thing we've got fruit to eat. No, it's all that God has done in the garden that he's given us to thrill and satisfy all of the senses that he's given us in herbs, trees, and fruit besides being useful in various ways. God planned to please us by their gracious lines and pleasant odors. So says Calvin, and he's right. Something about trees, something about trees. To prove this, to to make this point, do a little thought experiment. Imagine this, in your house right now, instead of a Christmas tree, you set up a Christmas thorn bush. No tree this year, go with a thorn bush. Decorate it. Smell it, maybe, you know, run your fingers along the branches and see how that goes. And see if that feels like life. And see if it inspires a song. Oh, Christmas thorn, oh, Christmas. I doubt very much that you will make that a tradition going forward. I bet next year you'll go back to the tree 
with its gracious lines and pleasant odors. There's something about trees, something beautiful and life-affirming, unless, of course, you set up an artificial tree, in which case, let's talk afterward. Life is in store, not just joy, not just peace, but life. And then one more. Glory. Glory is in store. Because what, is it, what does it go on to say there at the very end? Verse 13. It shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. It shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just the end of the chapter. This is the end. This is the goal of the whole of history and redemption. The ultimate end of all of this, the chief end of all of this, is that the Lord will have made a name for himself. The Lord will have brought glory to himself. Now, obviously, there's a sense in which God's already done that. He already has a name for himself, and that's because he's already revealed himself. And so we can already name him and refer to him according to the revelation of himself that he's given us in his word. And so we can name him God and creator and sustainer and judge and redeemer. We can already call him infinite and eternal, and unchangeable. We can already address him as wise, and mighty, and holy, and just, and good, and true. We can name him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's all of those things now, and he's revealed himself already, and so we can name him and refer to him in all of those ways already. But on that day, That day that hasn't come yet, when Christ comes back, God will have made a name for himself like never before. Because on that day, it'll be clear, it'll be manifest like never before, that he really was all of those things all along, and that we were right to call him those things. And for the whole of eternity, the very existence of this kingdom the very reality of a people of joy and life and peace in Jesus, living and worshiping and working and playing and loving and being loved, all of that will be a sign, it says here in our verse. And that sign will point to God. And that sign will never be cut off. It'll never be taken down. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And how remarkable and reassuring that is when we consider it against the backdrop of what our experience tends to be in this life. Things don't last. Things do get cut off and cut down and thrown out. I said before that there's something beautiful and life-affirming about trees. Well, that's exactly why there's something so depressing in early January when your Christmas tree is all dried up. Even though you tried to keep watering it as best you could day after day for those weeks. And you've got to take all the decorations off. 
because it's early January and the party's over. And it hurts to take the decorations off because it's so dry that it's starting to feel like a thorn bush. And then when you're all done, you drag that naked, dry, pitiful tree to the curb and you dump it there with the rest of the trash because that's what it's become. Happy New Year. Not what you'd call an everlasting sign. But this one will be. The kingdom of God. The people of God. Full of joy and life and peace in God. We will bring him glory and we will bring him glory forevermore. A sign never to be cut off. Never to be taken down. Glory is in store the very glory of God, and it'll be our own as we reflect it back to him. So, brothers and sisters, what's in store? Joy and peace and life and glory. That's what God has had to say even here, right here, about what's in store in the everlasting Sabbath that awaits us. As we draw to a close here, I do want to say this to any who've joined us today, not believing in Jesus Christ today. The grand outcome that we've been describing, joy and peace and life and glory, these things certainly are in store, no doubt, no question. This is where history is headed. But remember what I said when we got started. These are the things that are in store For the people of God, not for everybody. And so as wonderful as this is, this grand outcome that we've been describing, if you've joined us for the service, if you're tuning into the service, if you're watching later the recording of the service as someone who doesn't believe in Christ, this is still serious business for you. As certain as this outcome is, There is still an if that's hanging over this for you. There's still a maybe. There's still a possibly. There's still an if. If you heed the summons of this chapter in the Bible that we've been canvassing for a month or so now. If you heed the summons here to repent and come back to God through faith in Jesus Christ... Then, then yes, these things are in store for you personally, for you will be swept up in them personally. And the future that we've been describing today will be yours. But if you don't come back to God through faith in Christ, they are not in store for you personally It's not going to be joy and peace and life and glory on that day. And that's a hard thing to have to say for me. And perhaps it's a hard thing for you to hear. But it's true. Yours is an if to be faced today. If you come back to God. Will you come back to God? 
And if that's something you wonder about, that you're perhaps bothered about, and you want to talk about it, there's no if about this. I would happily talk with you about it, whether today or sometime during the week. You've got some serious business to tend to, and this is it. This is now your serious business. This chapter, this summons, this promise, this future. Don't let it drop. The way we sometimes let things drop in the busyness of this time of year. Now, those of us who do know Christ by faith, these things are in store for us. All four of them joy, peace, life, glory. Now, check your own heart this morning. Stop and think about your own heart. Would you say that yours is a hopeful heart? And that's not just a matter of being generally optimistic that tomorrow might be better than today. It's deeper than that. It's solid. It's a matter of having this as a fundamental sense of where history is headed, and it's yours. And so you don't get your fundamental outlook about the future from the newspaper, or from political campaigns, or from Twitter. Stop and think about your own heart, your own outlook. Is yours in Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13 kind of outlook? You know that this is where history is headed, and it's headed there for you, personally, by name, because God has redeemed you personally, by name, and has laid up these things in store for you. And that's why it can be that your earthly highs aren't unduly high, and your earthly lows, your earthly sorrows are not your undoing. Because there's something steadying and orienting in a dreadful, painful world like this one to know what's in store in that one. And that you're going there. And if you find, as you check your heart today, that hope has run low here at year's end, go to the God, the God of grace, the God of this Sabbath day, the God of that everlasting Sabbath day, for that very grace. Say, Father, rekindle my hope this day. It's a thrill to know that it's already underway. We already know the beginnings of joy and peace and life and glory. Glory begun below. But one day, on that day, we will know these things like never before. And we ourselves will be a living, breathing, redeemed, rejoicing sign. We'll be the sign pointing to the glory of God, that's what will be then. And it will be never cut off. And that's why we say today, on this Sabbath, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you this day.
as the God of our joy and peace and life and glory. And we thank you today that we are those in whose lives glory has begun below. And it is that very reality that we've already tasted and seen that makes us long for the world to come. And we do pray, Father, that you might refresh our hope today, having heard these words. We thank you that that day is coming. And we do say in prayer, O Son of God, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And amen.